in infamy. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern coast of Victor's European Force. Bonjour, I'm French author Clément Horvat and welcome to a brand new episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace, with an amazing interview of a British officer who fought from Normandy to Holland with the 4th Somerset Light Infantry, David Milchrist. I haven't done an episode for a while, uh, like I said in a previous one, I'm focusing on new books and movies which keep me very busy, uh, but I'll keep on releasing more podcasts from time to time. To make sure you don't miss them, please subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you get your podcast from and to get the latest news in your mailbox regarding upcoming projects, sign up for the mail call newsletter at tailvictory.com. By the way, before we get to the interview, I'm very happy to announce that the English version of my book Till Victory just won the Distinguished Writing Award from the Army Historical Foundation at the National Museum of the US Army. Um, The original French version was an award winner too, and I'm really proud that my work is being recognized in the United States as well. If you're into memoirs, war letters, and soldier stories you've never heard before, which you probably are, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to that podcast, I can only recommend you grab yourself a copy of Till Victory on Amazon or anywhere you like to get your books from. So, David Milkrist. If you've watched my new documentary on YouTube called The Missing Highlander, then you know who he is. David is a veteran who I was lucky enough to meet and interview for the film, which is about a missing in action soldier in the 15th Scottish Division named Joe, who disappeared during Operation Epsom. The doc aims to find answers, uh, to find out what happened to him through research in the archives and on the former battlefield and the interviews of experts, witnesses, and veterans. David's unit fought in the same area, so I've asked him all sorts of questions regarding what Normandy was like in 1944, uh, if he was scared, questions about fighting against uh, NASA's division, and much more. We recorded this conversation on July 2nd, 2021, so one year ago to the day. David is such a nice man. Very kind, with a great sense of humor, and, and what a life. Uh, I mean, after the war, he took care of horses for the Queen of England. Now he lives in Normandy, in a quiet and beautiful farm with his beloved horses, so it was easy for me to pay him a visit, and we actually spent a few hours at his home having tea, looking at pictures. Such a privilege. Uh, and I left with a big smile on my face and the best interview I ever had. I only used a part of it in the movie, just the one that served Joe's story, but the whole interview is extraordinary, so I thought I should share the rest with you uh, in this podcast. I rearranged some parts for the film, but this is the entire interview unedited. And David talks about why he joined the army, his baptism of fire, his responsibilities as an officer, crossing the scene on, on storm boats how losing one of his men changed his views on religion, uh, being wounded, the end of the war, and even Brexit and his fears for the future. And you could tell he trusted me and he didn't hold back. It's a rare thing to have a veteran share so many personal and sad stories, and you'll hear he does it right from the start. 
this is why this conversation is so important and this was such an honor to experience that. All right, I think I talked too much, so let's get to it. Um, the complete interview recorded for The Missing Highlander back in July 2021. It starts with me clapping my hands to synchronize the three cameras, so you, you see I, I kept it all. Uh, sorry for the sound quality of my voice, I didn't have a mic because I wasn't supposed to appear on screen. Enjoy! Je fais juste trois claps pour la synchronisation et voilà, ça y est, on peut commencer. Hop, merci pour votre patience. Clac! Clac! So, um, can you tell us your name, your age, and uh, the unit you served with? I was christened Michael David Milchrist. Mais je suis jamais Michel ou Michael, je suis toujours David Milchrist. Toujours mal écrit dans les presse, toujours. Mon âge, 97. I was born on the 3rd of February, 1924. And, and um, why did you join the army? Why did I join the army? I was at school, <coughs> a public school, you know in England, a public school is a private school, as a boarder. And uh, I was, the war was on, and I had a great friend who was my age. We grew up together. His name was Nigel. He was uh, a cadet at the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth. And I was sitting at school being coached for Latin and Greek for Oxford mm -hmm. after the war. And I had news of the Hood, HMS Hood, being sunk with only five or six survivors of 3,000. Among them was my great friend, Nigel. And I was so sickened by his death that I decided I wanted to get out of school. I was 17. And to get out, school was like a prison. You had to have an exiat to go down to the city of Exeter to buy a grammar book or uh, for education. And I applied for an exiat to buy a grammar book for Greek and Latin. And I had no, it was signed. I went down to the city center. It was just after Exa had been bombarded like Coventry in Plymouth. It was very difficult finding one's way around. And my only ambition was to join the army. So I went straight to the caserne, the barracks in Exeter, passed the medical test. I answered several questions. How old are you? And I said, 18. Oh, that's fine. In fact, I was 17. Yeah, you lied about your age. And so I came back to school a soldier. I'd been signed on. I had to have an interview with the headmaster after luncheon. And um, I was in his office. He said, what, what is the problem? I said, sir, I am in the army now. He said, you're what? I said, I am in the army now. He said, don't move, don't move. I'm going to telephone your father. I can get it annulled to sweet immediately because you have lied your age. He telephoned my father. I heard 
I was up next to him at his desk. And my father said, will you please um, congratulate my son and put the phone down? <laughs> the headmaster said, you have one hour to get out of school. You're not allowed to talk to anybody, collect your belongings and get out. You're a liar. That was how I joined the army. So I arrived home by bus. My father was a, a vicar of Buckfast Lee, halfway between Plymouth and Exeter. And I spent uh, several weeks at home waiting for my papers to arrive. And eventually they arrived. I had to report at a certain date. I think it was August um, 1941, when I was 17. And I got myself to the, the um, recruiting centre, or the training centre in Colchester on the East Coast. And I joined up. I was the only volunteer. And there was um, a section of young Bromidium boys from Birmingham who all arrived just before me. And we slept over the stables on palliasses full of straw. And I arrived with my blazer and school tie. And they were all descending to have their high tea, which was about five or six o'clock in the evening. And they said, oh, we'll get his tie off him before long. <laughs> so I immediately ripped off my tie. And that was my first day in the army. It was all rather strange. The next day, we were formed into a platoon with a drill sergeant. And he said in typical army language, right, when I say turn right, you turn right. When I say left, you turn left. Right, platoon, turn right. Everybody turned left except me. <laughs> I was the only person who obeyed the order. They thought, oh, my God, we've got a, a Mr. Lowell here. <laughs> And I was given a lance corporal stripe, unpaid, of course, because I knew the difference between right and left. Then about three days later, I was walking down a, or running down a corridor, and I bumped into the commanding officer, who was my um, teacher at Exeter School. And he said, David, what are you doing here? The sergeant major nearly collapsed being hearing Major Cobb referring to a recruit as David. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm now in the army. And he said, but you're too young. I said, well, don't talk. I'm, I'm these weeks, I'm 18. He said, right, we'll send you off to uh, OTC training officers. I said, no, sir. I want to be in the army for at least two years until I'm 20 almost before I'll accept a commission because how can I command sergeant majors who've been in the army for 30 years and me one week as a second lieutenant? So I preferred to say a private soldier with my last corporal unpaid stripe for two years. After that, I felt sufficiently knowledgeable of the army to accept or tried to be an officer, which I did. I was sent to um, the north of England for six months, and I turned out as a second lieutenant. 
I was commissioned into my county regiment, the Denver Regiment, and that's how I became an officer. Uh, what did you have in mind the day you crossed the Channel for the first time to go to France? What What did you think about? Were you scared? Excited? No, I wasn't scared. I was scared because the the sea was pretty rough, and quite a number of my soldiers. I was with a draft of soldiers I've never seen before. We left New Haven about six o'clock in the evening, six days after D Day. And my horror was being sent down below on a landing craft infantry, because I've always suffered terribly from claustrophobia, and that was the worst part. Wondering if I was going to be sick or not, <laughs> and being enclosed. If we hit a mine or something, there was no chance of getting out. So I wasn't scared. I was excited. I was scared of being confined. Because for six months I never saw a bed. I only once slept in a in a, in a barn with straw. Otherwise, six months was in a hole in the ground. Mm. No, my ambition was to see Nazi Germany beaten, and France. I'd never been to France before. It was just an honor to be in France and to think that we were part of the liberated force with the Americans and the Allies, the Belgians, the Scandinavians, the Hollandaise. It was a great experience. And, and at that time you were with the 4th Somerset Light Infantry? Yes, right? I was in a holding camp expecting to be sent to the um, 50th Division who had uh, um, the 4th Devons mm -hmm. Battalion. And for some unreason, I was making myself useful, collecting prisoners and things. And eventually, I was sent for an interview with the adjutant. And he said, right, it's time we sent you to a regiment now. Devon is your regiment. They are not short of officers. Somerset have just coming after the battle of the Côte Saint-Douze, south of Caen. They've had a number of casualties. That's not too bad. Somerset's next door to Devon. It's almost like being in the Devonshire Regiment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was sent to the Somerset Light Infantry in, uh, in the 43rd Division, yeah. the Wessex Division. Wessex. Well, today uh, the Norman countryside is a uh, very beautiful and peaceful place. But what was it like in 1944? It was terrible. Uh, it, it was, well, when I say it was terrible, it was... Um, hard to explain. For example, you might fight for 24 hours and gain half a kilometre. You might destroy a farm with their cattle. Most of the horses had been claimed by the German army, the Wehrmacht. And it was incredible. There one thing, if you liberated the farm, you were immediately thanked. The farmhouse might be on flames, all the cattle dead. And it was quite extraordinary, always the word, thank you, we're liberated. And it was a great experience, which gave one courage. I remember one farm, I was given a glass of um, cognac and calvados mixed with hot milk from a cow that hadn't been killed. 
and I was um, pretty drunk for 24 hours afterwards. I'd never had Calvados before. I, I know that your uh, baptism of fire was in Malto. Um, yes. It's just south of Mouan, where uh, Joe, you know, the, the soldier in my documentary, was killed. Um, yes. And, but I believe it was a rest. South of Caen. Uh, yes, southwest of Caen. Yeah, yes. Southwest, yes. And yeah, I, more, least. I believe that Mouan was a rest yes. area for uh, the 43rd Wessex Division. Do, do you remember the village by any chance? No, my first contact with Germans was at Malto, mm -hmm. collecting prisoners. And it's quite an interesting um, fact that um, when I arrived about eight o'clock at night, it was in, the, in June, the end of, um, well, beginning of July, uh, I was responsible for charging the um, three-tonner lorries with German prisoners of about two hundred German prisoners lying like sardines at the railway station. And I had I was helped by the um, army red caps, the army police. And I had to post a policeman, an army red cap, on every lorry to stop my soldiers saying, have a cigarette, have some chocolate, because they were all convinced that they were going to be murdered. The propaganda said, if you are taken prisoner, you will be murdered by the English. And, of course, they were all terrified. And if they, when I took them to um, an encampment for prisoners of war, they were very scared and told several stories, interesting for intelligence, for British soldiers. <coughs> so I had to guard every truck and forbid giving cigarettes. My, my sentiment was to give them a cigarette or give them some chocolate. They were soldiers, poor devils. They'd been happier in their, on their farm in Bavaria or somewhere. <coughs> But um, it's interesting that the British soldiers, having fought them, immediately were friendly. But during the, the, your first battle, you, you were uh, fighting against uh, SS troops, SS panzer troops. Yes. Uh, Later on, yes. They have a horrible reputation. When you talk to those prisoners, um, did you change your mind about them? Uh, or no, I loathe the Nazis. I detested the SS. But when I saw dead German soldiers, my troops would say if he was lying in a gutter full of flies and dead, they're a bloody German, only one good German is a dead German. I used to say, look, That is not the way you talk about your prisoners. That young man will get his wife or his mother will get a telegram from Hitler. We regret to say that your son died gloriously in the battle in Normandy. So I tried to convince my soldiers not to be, if you took a prisoner, you treated him correctly. After we crossed the Seine, we were the first battalion across the Seine. We were in a wood, the wood in St. Jerome, and there were some, a number of SS there taken prisoner by my division, my regiment. And a prisoner was led past my platoon area, and one of my soldiers said, you The young SS stopped and said, you <laughs> My soldier nearly fell down. I said, that will teach you a lesson. You, you, 
not impolite to prisoners. <laughs> so you respected the enemy a lot. Yeah. 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 They were fierce fighters, uh, yes. the SS, right? Yeah. Oh, they were. I mean, the SS. They were um, in the army from thirteen on. They were. They, they were terrible. Any SS regiment was terrible. Those awful crimes of killing Soviet prisoners, and it was unspeakable. But the Wehrmacht, a lot of enemy in Normandy, in the Bocage, the Battle of the Hages, a number were Russians who were only too pleased to be taken prisoner. So the ordinary German soldier was like us. But the SS were despicable, yeah. unforgivable. Yeah. And do, do you remember uh, your first day in battle, uh, your baptism of fire? Do, do you remember yeah. what it was like for you? Yeah, yes, I do. I, when I joined the Somersets, uh, it, we, they were just coming off Hill 112 <coughs> and we were going out for a three or four day rest, uh, have a bath, you know, the bath units. Houston were marvellous. They turned up with them a bus and have a shower. And you were on repo. You were not on repo because there was so much to do, counting the dead and the loss and the vehicles lost and so on. And I was posted to the Somerset Light Infantry, the 4th Battalion Somerset. And I was met by the commander, the um, major commanding the company. And he said, right, you will be in number one platoon, A company, number one platoon. Your position is about 400 yards ahead of us there. There you will meet your sergeant, platoon sergeant. And I arrived and I said, he said, get down in a hole quickly. The Germans are just in front of us. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> That was my first <laughs> instant of actually having to kill or be killed. <laughs> wow. And what was it like for you? Were you scared, uh, even though you trained for many years? No, it's funny enough. I, I don't ever remember being scared. I was always worried that there was something would go wrong or how could I avoid killing somebody. I never expected to survive the war. I accepted the fact that I, I only hoped that I would be killed and not maimed for life. That was my one ambition, to see the end of the war, but not as um, uh, maimed for life. I'd rather be dead. And when I was wounded, um, that was completely different. I thought, my God, I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll talk about it a bit later. Yeah. What is it like when you are so young and, and, and you have all those men under your command and all this responsibility? What, what, what was it like for you? It's terribly difficult. You have so many things going through your mind because you, if you are a private soldier, you are just responsible for, for yourself. Mm -hmm. If you're an officer, you're responsible for 30 men. And if you make a mistake, it can be a catastrophe, perhaps two or three wounded or dead or something like that. For example, when we, in my battalion, not the regiment, the fourth Somersets, captured the highest point in Normandy, Montpasso. Mm -hmm. It was us alone with a, a brigade on our left and a brigade, I forget which, on our right. But we fought all day long 
and the Mont Passant is the highest point in Normandy, and there's a stream, which was our crossing line, our front line, and there was a mass of German Schmeisers, machine guns. So every time you moved, you got fired at. And my company commander was then um, trying to move forward with shots and badly wounded. Two of our stretcher bearers went out and they were shot. That was typically SS, the uh, shooting Red Cross with a, a, a Bronkai stretcher. And we were stuck all day long. And eventually the colonel decided we were going to take Montpassant in the, in the night. And it, it was dark and we took Montpassant in Indian file, platoon after platoon. And we arrived on the top dug holes immediately. On our left were the Germans, on our right, and they didn't know we were there. It was quite extraordinary. After this horrible battle all day long against the machine guns and mines, and two tanks from the cavalry regiment found a way up and signaled that the, the centre of Montpassant was clear. That's how we got to the top. It was an extraordinary battle. When we were ordered off at about midday to um, be taken over by another regiment, another um, regiment in the, in the um, division, <coughs> and I was the last to leave with my batman. You always have a batman with you, a young man, about my age, 18 or 19. And uh, it was, uh, we had to go get off the hill, having taken the hill, to send um Le Grammont, associated with Grammont, I forget the name of the village. And there was a little pass with fox gloves on either side. And I was the last to leave with my batman. We heard a shell or a mortar coming. I ran to the, ran to the left. He ran to the right. It landed between us. When I came to, I hadn't a scratch on me. My batman had lost both his arms and died in my arms. That was horrible, horrible. Why I wasn't scratched, I can't think. And he was killed. So that upset me for several days. As you can imagine. Yeah. He hit both his arms. Was we were so happy that we had taken the highest point in Normandy, yeah. which theoretically was more important than Hill 112 because the Germans had a um, radar station on the top which were guiding the Luftwaffe in the bombardment of the Battle of Britain. Mm -hmm. So technically, or how do you say the word, um, militarily, for me, for my, my thinking, Montpassant was more important but only one battalion took it, so there were no great casualties. Whereas Coates on Dues, there were the divisions lost, killed and wounded, and nearly 500 soldiers. Well, then we, the battle continued, just uh, passing um, something to your neuro. Après, uh, we were then a part of the Fafales. Condé sur Noiro. Condé sur Noiro. Voilà. We crossed the Noiro at night. And then we were um, helping to close the gap 
south of Falaise. The Battle of the Bocage was the worst because every hedge was um, uh, defended by the machine guns and, um, how do you say, Tiro elite mm-hmm. snipers. And um, we feared much more the American Air Force than the British Air Force because yeah. the Americans bombed anything that moved. Yeah. But the British were very much more careful. They knew exactly where the front line was. Yeah. During the Battle of Brikisad, which was the beginning of Epsom, um, I took a patrol to find out where the Germans were. And um, we were creeping down a hedgerow on hands and knees and I was stuck, um, wounded, not wounded, uh, pierced by <coughs> these shoshu mines, which the Germans used, which were buried. And if you walked on it, it shot into the air and then exploded. Mm-hmm. And I was creeping on my hands and knees. I felt something um, piercing my knee. It was a shoe gun that didn't go off. That's a, one of my many... Escapes, which is incredible that I lasted for so long. Surviving during the war was uh, uh, mostly a question of luck? Yes, mostly luck. Like life, the whole of life is chance. I preferred the word chance. Mm. The fact that we are born is a chance. The fact that our parents had children is a chance. The fact that we were educated is a chance. The fact that you weren't killed is a chance. I was use the word chance more than luck. Because when we crossed the Seine, uh, did we talk about the Seine afterwards? Yes, uh, yeah. after the Battle of Normandy, tell us about uh, yeah. crossing the Seine. And- yeah, well, uh, after the gap was closed, a number of Germans escaped before it actually closed by the Canadians and the Poles and the Americans. We were pushing them or helping them. <coughs> Montgomery decided we, to send the Wessex Division post-haste to try and avoid all actions in villages or towns. Our objective was to establish another line on the right bank of the Seine before the German escapees formed a line which would have made a nasty crossing like the Rhine or the Waal. All those different river crossings in Holland. The Americans had taken Le Mans and were moving north towards Paris. And we, with the division, 33,000 vehicles, had to go as far as possible straight to Vernon and establish um, a bridgehead across the river. Mm-hmm. And it was a great work on the part of the um, international stuff, we were given only so many hours to use a certain road. Yeah. And then it was closed for the Americans to continue up towards Ilberf, and that's all history now. Mm. But so we crossed the Seine, and my battalion crossed the Seine, the Premier. I always claim I was the first boat to cross, um, storm boat. Because um, we were put loaded up on storm boats and with little motor, 20 horsepower motors like a lawnmower. And mine was the only start, first pull. 
And the cardinal said, go. And everybody else, so it was an accident or a chance that I happened to be the first person to cross the Seine, simply because my boat started up. So I take a little credit for that. And we landed on an island. The staff work again, then was not so good because they said it was an island, but it was dry and it was about four foot deep. So we had to spend the night on the island while the Wiltshires and the um, Hampshires crossed um, with ducks. We were supposed to cross on ducks, but because of the um, steepness of the left bank, they decided that storm boats were easier. This is why we didn't cross on with, the, you know, the duck, yeah. the floating mm. lorries. Mm. So we crossed in storm boats. And there's a photograph in one of the history books, the first boat to cross, which if it was the first, it was my boat. Okay. If it was. Can you see yourself on the picture? <laughs> yeah. No. And then that night we were on this island and I was telling my sergeant, he was a wonderful chap. He's been in the army <coughs> since he was 15 as a young soldier and made up to sergeant. And uh, he was a great help to me. He was 22 years old. And I was, was standing with him, telling him to put the bread gum here and mortar bomb there and a section there. And his head suddenly disappeared. Just disappeared. A sniper up on the hill overlooking the Seine with a 20 millimeter air gun, anti air gun. I was probably the target because I was the officer. Uh, obviously, snipers went for officers, then sergeants or sergeant majors, and then troops normally. But the, the main target was the officer. And my sergeant just collapsed without a head. And he's buried in the cemetery at Vernon. And I visit his grave every year to celebrate the liberation of Vernon. What was his name? Sergeant Langley. He was a wonderful young man. That affected me terribly as well, because I knew that the target was me. And again, a little side talk, talking to the, um, I'm agnostic. Mm -hmm. I'm not um, against religion. I just don't know. Mm. And I was talking to the, the local priest one day, <coughs> and he said, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> he said, David, I know about your history and your sergeant being killed. That was a sign that God was protecting you. I said, Padre, why the bloody hell didn't he, he allowed my sergeant to be killed? He said, oh, excuse me, well, I must leave now. <laughs> That, that is my idea of religion. Yeah. As if God knew that I was there or my sergeant was there. Rubbish. Yeah. Mm. So I'm agnostic. Maybe I've made a great mistake. Mm. But you, you, um, you, your luck ran out when you were wounded uh, in Holland. Uh, it was just in front of uh, Arnhem, right? It was in Just south of Arnhem. Yes. Can, can you tell us what happened that day? 
Well, we, we, we were stopped at Elst, a little village, just short, about two kilometres, two kilometres and a half, south of the bridge over the Rhine at Arnhem. And we were completely blocked by Germans. And I was in a, an orchard with a farmyard and a farmhouse, a little canal, and the Germans were on the other side of the canal. So it was all very unpleasant. I removed a slate from the roof of the farmhouse and I could watch the Germans having their breakfast and cleaning their rifles. And um, I don't know, it was either, a, um, I was in my trench, it was either a shell or a mortar, I shall never know, because I was unconscious, knocked out. And I woke up in an um, army hospital, tented hospital at Nijmegen, about two days later when I came to. So I can't tell you what happened. Yeah. Where were you wounded? In the back. In the back? I think it must have been a shell because there was an apple tree just behind my... And I still have a mark on my back. Okay. But um, I honestly don't remember. But <coughs> that was chance, Uncle, because I knew, having fought from Alamane, and from Aramanche, <coughs> excuse me, just through nearly six months, I knew I was coming to the end of my tether. You know, I was utterly exhausted. I, I can't say I was frightened. I was too exhausted to be frightened even, I think. So by chance, I was wounded and not killed. Again, a chance. But I didn't believe that the good Lord saved my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And and um, it, it was uh, you were lucky enough to to go home. I was. In, we were sent to a, on an ambulance train from Nijmegen, which took about two days, to Brussels, mm -hmm. a Red Cross Army train, and I was billeted in a magnificent and private nursing home. I couldn't believe it. I was in a bed <laughs> with sheets and blankets and flowers. And all the society women used to come and visit the officers. And I was disgusted because I discovered that the um, soldiers were down in the cellars. And we were treated like kings. And that annoyed me very much. And eventually I was put on an ambulance, taken to the airport of Brussels. And the... Um, the papers with me said this officer is not fit to travel by air. So I was sent back to the nursing home, the Brugman clinic, for another two or three days, itching to get back to England. I was, I was in hospital, um, I was sent to a hospital in um, Derby, Derby City, which was practically run by Rolls-Royce. And I remember they used to, send a delegation every Sunday to the officers' wards with a bottle of Guinness given by Rolls-Royce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and eventually I was fit to go home, and I went home to, to Devon. And then I was sent to a rehabilitation centre in Richmond Park. And I decided that I wanted to get back into Europe because my tiredness had completely left me. I was 
getting fit again. And I was fretting like the devil to get back to fighting. And I wanted to be in Germany at the end of the war, not in England. And I was sent to train young Dutch officers uh, going to the Dutch East Indies against the Japanese. And I was in charge of the um, officers' wing. And um, I met a lot of people in the Royal Sussex Regiment. It was in, in Chichester Barracks. And I knew the colonel of the regiment very well, the Royal Suffolk Regiment, the Royal Sussex Regiment. Their cap badge. Yeah. yeah. And I decided that um, if I went back to the Dimension Regiment, we'd be back to home defence on the coast of England. So I applied for a, a posting to the Royal Sussex, helped by the Colonel in Chief of the Royal Sussex Regiment. And there was um, a, a battalion of Royal Sussex in Italy, mm-hmm. in Trieste. So I arrived in Trieste, so happy to be back again. In the meantime, I've been to Germany with different regiments um, because I wanted to... Um, the, the war ended anyhow. I was in England and I was furious. I was at Dover waiting for a posting back to the 4th Somersets who were in Bremen. Mm. And I thought that I'd rather end the war in Bremen than Deauville. Um, Deauville, um, Dover. Yeah. So um, eventually I arrived in um, Yugoslavia with the Royal Sussex Regiment. It, then we were on the Morgan Line defending Trieste against Tito mm. and the Russians, which was practically the beginning of a Third World War, mm. the Morgan Line. And we were up in the hills defending Trieste. And in the meantime, I took an exam to become a regular soldier. And um, we were posted to, um, from Yugoslavia, Italy, to Malta with the Royal Sussex. And my posting came through. The colonel called all the officers together for a lunch party. He said, gentlemen, David Milquist is made captain and he's got a regular commission. Cheers, champagne all round, but he's a gunner. And the one thing I have never been able to do is arithmetic. And the gunners live by arithmetic. Is, is what? Arithmetic. Um, Mathematique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Après un, trois, quatre, cinq, je suis fini. Well, the gunners live by arithmetic. Okay. Angle of sight, distance, all done with a slide rule. I hadn't the faintest idea what was going on. So I was posted, and the colonel said, but he's a gunner. And I thought, oh, my God. So I was sent to Egypt to be posted to a gunner regiment. I was given um, an interview by the BRA, the Brigadier Royal Artillery, Middle East. He said, how do you feel about becoming a gunner? I said, Brigadier, do you want an honest answer? And he said, I wouldn't ask you if you didn't give me an honest reply. I said, bloody awful. He said, oh, my God. My son came this morning for an interview. He was a rifle brigade, which is almost the guard brigade. 
and he can't do arithmetic either. He said, do you like horses? And I said, they'd be my life. I live for horses. Would you like to go to a horse gunner regiment? Oh, please bring it in. Because I, and I was so happy. I went to the Royal Horse Artillery, 6th Royal Horse Artillery. We were sent to Palestine. It was then Palestine. While we were in Palestine, Montgomery became CIGS chief of the Imperial General Staff. And um, he decided there were too many horse gunner regiments per rata artillery regiments, either heavy regiments or light regiments. So um, he decided to make us an ordinary six royal artillery, not six royal horse artillery, with special buttons and with my idea of heaven being a horse regiment. And I immediately applied for a commission, a, a posting to a proper cavalry regiment because we were losing our horse yeah. status. This is how I became the 1420s King's Hussars. So it's slightly different to most people. I served as a soldier in the infantry. I was an officer in the Denver Regiment. I was a captain in the Royal Sussex Regiment. I was a captain in the Royal Horse Artillery and a captain in the Royal the Cavalry. So I fought in, I have not fought, I served in every arm of the British Army, which is slightly unusual. Yeah, what a career. But eventually I arrived at the Cavalry yeah. Regiment. And that was uh, after the war. Do, do you remember um, the end of the war? Uh, the day the war ended? Oh, yes. How did you feel? <coughs> I was stationed in, in a holding camp in Dover, waiting for a ship to take me to um, uh, Calais mm -hmm. and there by train to Bremen to join the force. <coughs> and it was announced at about nine o'clock in the morning the war was over. And all the officers came down for breakfast, and I was looking very glum. And he said, you ought to be happy. I said, no, I'm in bloody England. I ought to be in Germany. And I was furious that I was still in England. This is my great ambition to get out of England, because coastal defense was finished, you know. Germany was finished. So um, that's, oh, yes, a little story. I became very friendly with the Royal Navy at Dover, Dover in my waiting to go to Germany. And there was a second lieutenant who was a great friend of mine. He was a commander of an MTB. There were two MTB, most of Toby boats, mm -hmm. in the harbour. And uh, we decided to have a party in the first MTB. And the tide was in, so that was very easy. Then we decided to spend the another hour on the next <coughs> MTB, and the tide was going out. By this time, we were all very drunk, and I had to climb a high, very high ladder to get out of the boat. Mm. And I couldn't make it. It was the first time I'd ever been drunk. And I remember going back to the barracks, wondering why the road was twisting and turning. <laughs> That was my experience of D-Day. <laughs> 
furious that I was in England, yeah, yeah, drunk yeah. as a lord yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. by the Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, is this all nonsense? No, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all this. It's it's fantastic. I, I'm really honored to to hear all those stories. <laughs> and and um, uh, I just have a couple of questions yes. left. Uh, after you've been wounded and you've lost so many men, uh, do you still hold resentment uh, against the Germans today? Funnily enough, I don't. Germany is divided. The SS, the young soldiers, were ghastly. But to me, a war is soldiers. And I thought my first reaction was, thank God, that's the end of the killing, be it Germans or British or French. That was my great feeling of relief that I'd survived and that now we had to do something about Europe. But don't talk to me about Brexit because that makes me ill. Yeah. Yeah, Cecil Newton says the same thing. Hmm? He, Cecil Newton that I, I, I showed you? Yeah, uh, yes. He says the same thing. He has a European flag in his garden yep. in, in England. Yeah. And uh, he told me he, he fought for uh, the United States of Europe. Yes, That's, uh, exactly. the reason why he joined. I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah. I, I went to bed the night of the, the vote. I don't know whether this is in context. And I listened all night. And I, I, it sounded at the beginning that um, staying in Europe was winning. I thought, thank God for that. As the night went on, it became more and more depressing. And I came down to breakfast and I had my dog with me. My, he was called Victor. He's dead now. And I said, Victor, I'm going to apply for French nationality. And my dog said, have a coffee, have some more toast and marmalade, think again. And I applied for all the papers to become a French citizen. And about a month later, there's a professor who lives in the next village. but He's a, a, an English professor who spent most of his life at the um, Sorbonne mm -hmm. in Paris as a professor in English. He immediately took out nationality, French. I had all the papers with his, which he helped me. And I was going hunting one day, waiting to send my papers in. And it was just at the start of the yellow jackets, yellow, comment s'appelle them? Ah, les gilets jaunes. Les jaunes. Oui, gilets jaunes. Oui. Les jaunes. Oui. And I was stopped at a roundabout and told that I couldn't give, proceed because I wasn't, um, everybody had, had a, 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 if you have an accident, you know, you in your voiture, you have a, a, a gilet, jaune, for to warn other people your car is on pan or something. And I was stopped by these ghastly creatures in yellow jackets. I'd seen it on television. Paris, I love. I couldn't live in Paris, but I love Paris. Seeing them wrecking the Champs Elysees, mm. I was stopped and told I couldn't go on because I hadn't got my gilet on the, mm, 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 mm. in view. Mm. And I told him to go to hell. Mm. 
and I decided to go on to my hunt, and I decided out of the frying pan into the fire, I'm going to change my nationality, which doesn't exist, Anglo Normand. And everybody now knows that I'm not British, I'm not English. In fact, I'm not English because I'm Manx. Ma the the Isle of Man. Ah, oh, Man you Manx. say Manx. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And French people say, you are English? No. Ecossais? No. Irlandais? Mm. No. Pays de Gaulle? No. Oh, c'est pas possible. C'est <laughs> Manx, the Isle of Man. Yeah. Do you think that uh, enough is done to remember uh, what what you? I'm, I'm disappointed because of Brexit, mm -hmm. because I think um, Europe without the English. I look at these cemeteries and wonder what my my dead friends would be thinking now. Why did they die? So, the, before the week before the sixth of June this year, I was asked personally by the BBC. The Times, The Telegraph, and The um, Guardian to give an interview, which I'm giving you. And I refused all four. My was, the excuse was that if you asked me about Brexit, I might say something which wouldn't go down too well in England. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. disgusted yeah. that England has um, chosen that. By the way, do, do you do you uh, want me to use uh, those no, I've been, Brexit? All my friends are dead now. Yeah. I've got to admit it. You know, in two and a half years, I'm a hundred. I hope to God I won't be there around. But uh, I've got so many French friends who I love and like. They've all got people like you. They're all my friends now, uh, between 20 and 30. They're all utterly charming, educated. I love the French. I love the Normans. I love Normandy. I, I've nulled my passport. I don't have a passport. I have no intention of going back to England. England to me is kaput. And, and what about the young people uh, of France that, you know, uh, grew up in a free uh, country? Thanks I, to you. I worry terribly. The lack of discipline in the young, I'm talking generally now. I th I've learned a lot from um, this ghastly virus. Mm. I'm a great believer in um, keeping all distance and everything. And now if somebody bulges at it, I say, please, would you go back? Oh, that's all nonsense. That upsets me, you know. There, there, there are a lot of people like that now. Mm -hmm. And what would be um, a message that you you would have for uh, the next generations? You can say it in French if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many French friends who I'm very fond of. People like you, much younger than I am, <coughs> because my generation, they're all dead now. I don't worry about your generation because I think they will survive and are sensible enough, like my friends, like you, to see the way forward. I don't fear for your generation. The generation, if you had children, I would worry. I'm going to have one in three months. You're married? Yes. And you're expecting a child? Yeah, in three months. Three months? Yeah. My first one. 
Oh, well, I hope I haven't upset you by saying that. Because <laughs> no, I, I have confidence in my, yeah. my generation are dead now. But I fear, what will the world be like when your children mm. are 30 years old? Yeah. What the whole future holds, I just don't know. You're worried about the future? Very. Yeah. Very. I remember during the war, my father said to me, when I, before I joined the army, he was talking to um, a very well-known politician. My father was um, a vicar, mm -hmm. um, Protestant. And I always remember my father saying that this well-known statesman said to my father, after the war, don't worry about Russia, China, worry about China. Now, I do worry greatly about China. Mm. I stayed in the army because I was convinced there would be, the, in the Cold War, I was convinced there would be the Third World War, and I thought, well, I might be a major or a colonel, I might even survive again. Mm. <laughs> this is why I stayed in the army. Mm. When I realized the Cold War was a sham, mm. I said, right, now I've done 15 years. I'm going to start a new life, breeding horses, mm. which I did, did until I was... Um, and I had the chance of coming to Normandy, which was my great ambition, to live and, and die in Normandy. Yeah. Uh I just have one final question. It's very technical, uh, but Hola. you were an officer, uh, so it, it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, it's concerning the soldier in the documentary. Uh, I, I will tell you the story uh, short. Uh, Joe um, went missing on the 28th of June. Is this Scott? Yeah, yeah. Yes. He went missing on the 28th. Um, but in the battalion's history, It says that he was killed on the 27th. And on his tombstone, it's written 28th. Which, uh, it, which cemetery is he in? Uh, Some of you, just north of Chou. Yeah. And his family still doesn't know what happened to him. Oui. Uh, he went missing for months. Um, what, what happens when you, uh, you have one of your men lost in the chaos of war? Uh, what, what? Well, the only answer I can give, the First World War, My father was um, a chaplain in Belgium and France for mm -hmm. nearly three years as a, uh, a chaplain. And as now, he was a captain, but a chaplain. So he was burying the dead and writing letters to parents who'd lost their son or their husband or whatever it was. And my uncle, David, who was 18, was killed during the Battle of the Somme, and was never found. Oh. He was blown to bits. And four years ago, I have a great friend who's a colonel in the um, Belgian army, the Belgian Légion d'honneur, and he invited me to spend a week in Ypres, mm -hmm. which is now called Lepers or something. It was Ypres. And um, because I wanted to find my uncle's name, there are 50,000-plus names on um, marble slabs in this much bigger than the Arc de Triomphe. It's, it's a closed arc, which the traffic goes through, and it's closed 
every night at six o'clock for the retreat with the bagpipes every night since 1928. So extraordinary. Mm. And my uncle David, this is why I'm called David, was never found. And at the first, the second tablet I saw written, David Milquist, but he was never found. So he might be buried in Westminster Abbey as the unknown soldier. Some people would like to think it's true. I, I just say, by, by chance, it might be him, but I don't think so. Mm. But he was never found. He was blown to bits. So I don't know if that answers your question. What, what, what you mean by that is that uh, war is such a huge uh, chaos that one one life doesn't mean a lot. In, no. It's just a cog in the big machine, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the only reason I mention it because my my uncle David, this is why I'm called David, after him, was never found, and I was born in '24, and that was very soon after the First World War. So I was all uh, monument de mort, all new. I was brought up in the effects of the First World War, which affected my father deeply because he spent three years as a chaplain burying and helping wounded soldiers. Mm. He didn't actually fight. So um, your friend, what was one day in a war, whether it's the 27th or 28th, that's paperwork probably. Somebody you've got the wrong date or something like that. So I don't know if I've answered your question. I haven't really. Yes, it's, if I understand the idea is that um, it's... The uh, date is not important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if he was found, as now in these lovely cemeteries, which are like gardens with roses and yeah. things, I, I have two young French people to your age. He now lives in Switzerland. He works for um, a Swedish firm. And he's like you, he's very interested in um, in the first, the Second World War. Yeah. And um, we spent a day going around the cemeteries in Calvados in Normandy. And when we went to um, Bayeux Cemetery, I turned around, he had a friend at the same age, about 30. And I looked at them, they both had tears in their eyes. They couldn't speak. They were so touched. The same thing happened at Saint Laurent. We arrived out there on the cliff, that, that beautiful cemetery. Mm. They were speechless. They could. They. It was very touching. Mm. People of your age mm. are very affected by. Yes, we are extremely grateful for what you did for us. Even though we haven't lived the war, um, we uh, realize that. Um, We are free thanks to you and, and my work and all those young men's work and women's work is about saying thank you to you, uh, for what you did. And well, and, I would say it's, 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 the honor is, is my honor, not yours to have fought for, for Europe and for France, I'm sure. Thank you so much, David, for everything you've done and for, 
that interview, which means a lot for me. It's a real honor to uh, to hear your story. Thank you so much. Well, I hope it was what you uh, wanted. Yes, it's it's great. It's perfect. Amazing. It. I'm, I I feel so privileged to. Uh, to well, don't you know? It, I'm privileged. It, it's very touching when my, I go to the, which uh, normally I invited to about 30 different ceremonies every year, the, the villages around here. And people come, older people come and say, Monsieur Mulcry, thank you for what you and your friends did. Thank you. So I would say, you know, it's the honor is ours, not yours. So the, the, the older generation always could come up and thank me and say thank you for what you did, which is very touching. And as I say, I'm now famous on television I mean, simply because I'm st still alive. No, because you, uh, you've done something exceptional. You, you stood up to uh, Nazism and fascism and put your life on on hold for us uh you didn't have to i mean it's uh like you say i'm, I'm not sure my generation would be would, would actually do it you know uh, oh i think so i think, you think? no as i say i'm not worried about you my friends your age i have confidence they're so sensible and they've got a head on their shoulders But I wouldn't like to think what Europe will be like when your children are your age. That's mm. what worries me. Mm. They might be much better off than we are. They might be much worse off. Who knows? Well, I can I can tell you that uh, I'm going to have a son and that I'm going to tell him your story and all the other soldier stories and so that he understands um, the ch chance he has uh Uh, living in a free world and and that his job will be to maintain that peace as well because it's important and and you 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 you've been through a very dark time uh with little hope and 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 we don't know what it's like uh i mean mm. sure we are afraid no, no. of global thank god thank god you yeah. know. and and we we don't realize the the, the how lucky we are But I'm going no, I to... think people like you and your my friends like you, again like you, I think they appreciate what we did. But I mean, how many people talk about the first first world war now? It's forgotten. Thirty mm. million people died, mm. and then nobody even thinks about it now. So, are you afraid that you are going to be forgotten? I'm not afraid. I think it's in the end. It's bound to. My name isn't written in stone. Mm. <laughs> the the Légion d'honneur sent me, um, which I've had the two great honors for France, Légion d'honneur, which effectively, mm. it was such an honor to be, um, to receive the um, France's highest um, mm. honor. And the second one is the Légion Normandie, because I had a bit... It, a very nice letter from Henri Morin, who's just won a great victory, mm -hmm. saying this is a medallion given by all the Normans to thank you for what you and your friends did. That was very touching, mm. that medallion. Yeah.
So I've been very honored twice. Yeah. And you deserve it. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. I, well, I won't well, take too much of your time, but thank you so much for, for everything. Can I put the cafe on now? Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I can yeah. offer you a whiskey. But no, you're, you're driving. Oh, yeah. I'm driving. <laughs> That's it, folks. The complete interview of David Milchrist recorded for The Missing Highlander. Since then, my son Leon, uh, Leon, <laughs> was born. Right now, he's uh, eight months old, and he can't understand a word of that interview. Uh, but I'll make sure he listens to it later. Hopefully, the world will be a better place by then. Here's something I haven't told anyone beside my wife. Um, David was the very first person to hear my son's name. Um, he asked me uh, while I was walking back to my car and I thought it was so cool that a British World War II officer was the very first to know, even before my own parents. Um, like the name too. So here you go, Leon. When you listen to this in 20 years, you'll have a cool story to tell your friends. So now stop complaining about your name. I also want to address uh, the part where David talks about not trusting the new generations. Um, you have to understand that it's not easy being a 98-year-old living alone. Um, in the last year alone, his car was stolen, uh, his house was broken into while he was there, and he was scammed by people claiming to work on his roof. Uh, some people don't know respect. And I don't know anyone who deserves more respect than David. So, I think I agree with him. And the pandemic hasn't helped. It has divided us more than it has brought us together. Because the other has become a threat. Also, uh, since we did the interview, the war in Ukraine has started. Uh, while we thought the war in Europe was a thing of the past. Can't we be kind to one another? Um, is everything really going to go downhill from here? Alright, I'll leave you with that. Um, watch The Missing Highlander on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel. I don't know when I will do another episode, but I will. Make sure you don't miss it. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Au revoir.